This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 694, and this week we honor and memorialize Hal Levin, an IAQ pioneer, We've remastered the first of our two-part show that was done in April of 2010. And uh, they also had a real nice obituary on the ashray.org website. We'll put that link in the chat, and also it's in the show announcement. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget about afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio association sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at acgih.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question which was to identify where in the continental United States were biological weapons first used during warfare. The answer to that question is actually Fort Pitt, which is today Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when British gave smallpox infected blankets to Indian warriors. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, March 17, 2023, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand their IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. In what year did Hal Levin coin the term building ecology? Back to you, Joe. Hal Levin is a research architect with Building Ecology Research Group in Santa Cruz, California. Mr. Levin has conducted research and consulted on buildings' impacts on occupant health and comfort, as well as on the larger environment. Since 1978, his work has focused on the integration of knowledge about indoor and outdoor air pollution, as well as other risk factors into the design, construction, and operation of residential, educational, commercial buildings, and communities. He's contributed to the design of many award-winning buildings, including the design of ventilation, 
building material selection, energy conservation, and total environmental quality. He's also contributed to the scientific and professional advancements in the field of life cycle analysis and risk assessment as indicators of the sustainability of building designs and practices. Hal coined the term building ecology in the late 1970s and focusing on the dynamic and interdependent relationships between buildings, their occupants, and the larger environment. The list of his clients, uh, his clients includes government, industry, and private individuals on five continents, and he has been a leader in numerous professional and scientific societies and has received awards from several, including the 2008 ASHRAE Environmental Health Award. He is also executive director of ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and president of the Indoor Air Institute. And in getting to know how a little bit this week, I learned he's an avid baseball player. And he pitches competitively in the over-25 hardball league out in San Jose, California. And he also was the most valuable player at the Los Angeles Dodgers adult baseball camp. We have you on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, great. Thanks for joining us on IAQ Radio. We, uh, we went through a little bit of your CV, Hal, and I noticed that you attended Cal Berkeley. Um, I know back in, in 1969, you graduated from Cal Berkeley with an architecture degree and Prior to that, you had gone to Cornell. I was just curious, where, uh, what part of the country were you born in? I was born in Portland, Oregon, and lived there till my family moved to L.A., where my father was from, and I went to K-12 through in uh, L.A. Okay, and then I understand you went out and played a little ball in, uh, in New York at Cornell? Well, I played on the freshman team there, but the uh, weather interfered with baseball. The winter lasts much too long, and... Uh, so I transferred to to Berkeley uh, in my sophomore year and, and, and played baseball there. Well, that, that had to be an interesting time in Berkeley. Um, any interesting stories from the, the 60s at Berkeley? Well, I was I was in Sprout Plaza the day the free speech movement started, uh, <laughs> sitting there around the police car that uh, with the guy they arrested for leafleting for people to volunteer to go to Mississippi and register voters. And uh, I left I left Berkeley before I finished my education to go in the Peace Corps in Columbia, South America, but I returned to finish in January of 69, and there was a third world strike in January, and then the famous People's Park, uh, whatever you want to call it, riot demonstrations and, and, and so on in... Uh, in May of that year, and uh, the National Guard occupying Berkeley for, I think, about six weeks. So you went through an interesting time. I know after that you went out and you started Hal Levin Design and Construction and the um, Building Ecology Research Group. Did you actually build homes and buildings during that time in the 70s? Yeah, my, my motivation, after I got out of the Peace Corps, I worked for some uh, firms in uh, – architecture and consulting and uh, got very interested in the owner-builder movement and I wanted to help people design and build their own houses. I was very committed to that based on my experience in South America and some of the consulting work that I had done when I got back. And so I, I thought it'd be a good idea if I built some houses, although I'd been around building all my life. My dad was a builder and I started working around construction when I was about 10 years old, picking up plaster and scraping paint off windows and stuff. 
but uh, I built some houses and I helped quite a few people design and, and build their own houses in Santa Cruz County in the 70s. How what's this term building ecology mean to you? When I got interested in indoor pollution and, and not just indoor air quality, but uh, all the conditions in the indoor environment, I saw a narrow focus of the various disciplines that worked on the problem and a lack of connection between the various parts. And I had started teaching both at Berkeley in the architecture department and at the University of California, Santa Cruz in the environmental studies board. And I had read some ecology textbooks to try to understand better my colleagues' uh, work in, in Santa Cruz. And I saw the built environment as not so dissimilar from the natural environment in terms of its complexity and the interdependence of the various components. But in the science that I was reading to try to understand indoor air quality and light and noise, I saw very narrow focus and a lack of the connections being made. Also, before we had personal computers, analysis was usually done as a slice in time. And uh, so you take a sample of air in a building, for example, and in a sense, it's like a, a, a photograph with a certain limited time exposure, but it doesn't necessarily tell you enough about what happens at other points in time when conditions change all around it. Uh, I also saw building occupants as very important in terms of the operation of buildings or uh, attempting to defeat the intent of the building. And so building ecology was a way of bringing the concept of ecology, of studying a system in its dynamic interrelationships uh, into uh, the study of the built environment. It's interesting. It's, it seems like, you know, that's, it's on a comeback, Al. Uh, I'm curious, were you able to get owners to buy into that concept uh, when you first started building and designing projects? Well, I hadn't coined the term when I was designing and building. I was as unconscious as most people <laughs> of uh, interconnections. And I used I used chemicals uh, that uh, later were banned. But, you know, as a builder, I didn't have time to ask about the negative consequences of what I was doing. Uh, as an architect, I didn't have time to, to really ask, are there going to be any problems? Architects and builders are very solution-oriented, and they need the answer now, and they don't have time to, to do a lot of research. And their research is of the solutions, not of understanding the problem better. So uh, I, I really had no idea about the impacts of buildings on people's health. And then... Uh, I was appointed to the State Licensing Board for Architects in 1977, and in uh, early 78, I went to a lecture uh, about healthy houses, and without getting into the details, it made me realize we were licensing architects to protect public health and safety, and architects didn't have a clue uh, how buildings affected people's health. So I started doing research on my own, and then I got hired at Berkeley, and, and supported to do that research, and, and the rest is history. So, go ahead. Go ahead, Chuck. Okay, I was just going to say, so after uh, you, you were doing some design, and then you went into the research and consulting end of things, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that and what some of your first early projects were? Well, the first 
project I had was to look at schools. I, I, you know, when I got into indoor air quality, the idea that a building could make somebody sick was anathema. And there I was teaching in an architecture school, and I was telling people, look, what you're doing has health impacts. You, you, you're actually affecting people's health and some people adversely. There was a lot of resistance to that idea. Building owners didn't want to buy into that idea. So I saw a major challenge being how to reach the public and how to reach policymakers and how to reach designers. And I thought, you know, people all care about children. They care about schools. Children are sort of the helpless victims of what we adults decide for them. And there are a lot of schools that have pretty lousy environments because there's never enough money to, to support the facilities. So I got a grant to study schools. We looked at 10 schools throughout California at various grade levels of various vintages and uh, in, in uh, various kinds of designs to try to understand better the relationships between the school and, and the indoor environmental quality. So that was, that was my first project. And word got out that I knew something about this by around 1980-81, and people were having a lot of problems with formaldehyde and other things at that time, and I started getting hired as a consultant a lot, uh, because it just, not that I knew so much, I just knew a, a lot more than, than most other people, and architects all knew me because of my, my role on the licensing board, uh, and, and, uh, then the state hired me to investigate uh, a couple problem buildings that they had. And it just, you know, it was like, uh, if you're the only game in town, then everybody comes to watch that game. <laughs> I can understand that. Well, what, what ecology, building ecology concepts uh, didn't catch on, like, the way you wanted? And then after that, maybe you could tell us which ones you think did kind of catch on. Well, fundamentally, the concept embodies a comment of the way science is done and of the way engineering is done and of the way uh, practice is done. Architects, for example, contractors, as I said before, they're looking for the solution. And so they, they, they know there's a problem, whatever that problem may be, uh, and they just want to know what's available to solve it. And they haven't got time to understand it. I'll give you an example. The first large building I consulted on was a building for Pacific Bell, the telephone company out here at that time. 7,500 people were going to move into that building. And they, this was in 1983. And they hired me to work on the indoor air quality issues because they'd had some complaints in some of the buildings the people were moving from. And they said, well, how do you, how do you work? You know, what, what, how does an indoor air quality consultant work? And I didn't know. I was inventing it as I went along. They said, well, we just get the whole team together and we talk about what the issues are from an indoor air quality perspective. And the other consultants and specialists talk about theirs. And then we try to work out some sort of agreement about, uh, where the, where, where the is in the solutions that will work for all of us. So I gave a little talk, and then we had the discussion. And after the meeting, the project manager said to me, we don't want to understand it. Just tell us what to do. <laughs> and, 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 and that's one of the largest architecture firms in the country. It always has been for, for many decades and still is a, a major prominent firm. 
They win design awards. They won awards for that building, uh, but not because of the indoor air quality. And uh, it, it, it's, it's just very difficult for all of us to stop doing the narrowly focused things we do and to say, what are the impacts of what I'm doing on others and what are the impacts of other people's activities on me? We, we don't, architects and everybody complains we don't get enough of a fee from, from uh, the owner. We don't have enough time, uh, and if the owner doesn't care, then there's no reason to even think about it. With respect to the building ecology concepts, I mean, obviously you have gone on and worked for a string of people doing, I, I assume, pretty much what you just explained to us here, kind of acting like a, a clerk of the works for indoor air quality issues. Um what else, who else has been able to kind of break through this over the years and, and what other kinds of concepts that, you know, revolve around building ecology did kind of catch on? Well, there's increasing recognition of the need to integrate all the different components of the building. There's increasing recognition of the need to get the building operators involved during the design phase to get the contractors involved during the design phase. Commissioning, the whole notion of commissioning embodies the idea of getting good communication from design concept all the way to operation and occupancy. Um, so I would say in some sense, there are manifestations of the need that building ecology tries to address. The current um, buzzword in, in design is integrated design. And everybody talks about the need for integrated design. It's kind of like mom and the flag and apple pie. But in fact, it's very, very hard to accomplish to get the different disciplines to sit down and, and, and talk to each other and, and work out the whole design as a group. In a number of exceptional projects with very, you know, uh, environmentally oriented architecture firms, I've been able to have that kind of what, what we call a charrette or uh, what you might more commonly call a brainstorming session with all the parties involved at the outset uh, and trying to conceive of the whole design uh, in, in a big picture kind of way from the start because the mistakes you make at that original conceptual phase are very hard to correct as you go further and further into making that building more real. And, and then once you get into construction, changes are even more difficult. And then when you occupy a building, you kind of inherit what's there. And it's very expensive to replace things or modify things. You, you also, I know you've been very involved with, with research issues and, and kind of how to move the industry forward to work, you know, around that building ecology concept. Obviously, we're always looking for new guests, and we're interested in who our esteemed guests that we have on think are other people in the industry right now or in the research community that are doing good work with respect to how we can integrate the building ecology. Can you run a couple of names by us that you respect in the field? Well, you know, a couple of the, the best thinkers in the field uh, are people who are very, very good scientists and can do extremely good detailed work, but understand the larger context in which 
that work goes. And, and the two that come to my mind are Bill Nazaroff at the University of California, Berkeley, with whom I've had the privilege of, of collaborating and working uh, with, and, and who's one of the other directors of the Indoor Air Institute, along with Bill Fisk at Lawrence Berkeley Lab and myself. And, and Bill starts a lecture by giving you the big picture within which his very focused research uh, takes place. And so he'll give you, you know, a molecule is this big and a, a, a room is this big and, a, and, and, and you know, he, he puts things in, uh, in a context so that you can understand them and then he, he, he explains his, his detailed work and he's very, very uh, bright. For me, probably the brightest indoor air scientist in the world today. On the other side uh, of the country, Charles Weschler, Actually, he's on the other side of the Atlantic right now at the Danish Technical University, uh, where he's been a visitor for about six or seven years part-time. But he's from New Jersey, and Charlie is the one who brought to the indoor air community the awareness that the ozone in outdoor air uh, is a problem when it gets inside, and that a lot more of it gets inside than we imagine, and of what does get inside uh, a lot of it reacts with other chemicals in the indoor environment and forms more nasty chemicals than the ones from which it started. So Charlie goes from the big picture, the connection between the indoors and the outdoors, down to the minutia of the molecules that are in the dust particles that are on the wall or in the floor uh, and that uh, could have important health implications. So those are those are kind of my two indoor air science heroes. There are a lot more, but but uh, you know, I'll stop with that. No, I've uh, I've stumbled across actually some of Charlie uh, Charlie Weschler's work, and it's pretty fascinating. It's really opened my eyes and got me to think differently about ozone because it was a common tool used for remediation, affluent uh, fires and disaster repair and. I'd had some unusual experiences with it and, and reading some of his uh, – some of the papers that he's written kind of answered things. And actually, I was uh, I was on your website in preparation for the interview, and I did come across the YouTube lecture. And it was – you know, this – he's talking about – uh, you know, the effect of ozone and, and human shed skin particles in your breathing zone and uh, a lot to think about. Well, and, and as you saw, the, the, the bottom line from that lecture is that the oils in our skin end up on our walls, our floors, all the surfaces in the indoor environment. Right. And even though that oil is only 1% of the mass of our skin cells, we shed our whole skin surface every two weeks, and there's a lot of mass there being shed all the time. And then what comes off of us is coating all the walls. And you know, an interesting conclusion is that different building types and different spaces in buildings that seem very dissimilar behave in a very similar way when ozone gets in them. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a fascinating tale, and, and Charlie is uh, one of my superheroes in terms of really bringing our awareness of this problem uh, into the indoor air community. Well, we're going to use your name when we get them on the show. 
We would have been a great teacher, as you saw if you watched. Oh, absolutely, I did. It was it was unbelievable. It's very good. He's a fantastic teacher. How? Well, what are one or two of the the key mistakes that we've made over the past thirty or forty years here now, and that we should not repeat, if at all possible? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that uh, a lot. <laughs> really one of the biggest mistakes is the separation in ASHRAE of the ventilation and indoor air quality standards, standard 62, and the thermal comfort standard, standard 55. Because as designers, as builders, as building operators, or as occupants, the same systems that are delivering uh, or supposed to be delivering good indoor air quality are also the systems we rely on for thermal comfort. And I've been on the both of those committees within ASHRAE on the IAQ committee for 10 years and the thermal comfort committee for five. And they both have narrowed their scopes, not broadened them to carefully avoid discussing any possible interaction with the other standards. And you can't separate things like that in the real world. You know, as John Muir said, when, when, you, when you look at the, at the environment around you, you realize that everything on Earth is hitched to everything else on Earth. And uh, it, it just simply doesn't make sense. Uh, some of the other mistakes that we make is um, we're, we're too susceptible to uh, myths. Um, when I got into this field, I thought, you know, Barry Commoner's got the answer. Natural is good. Synthetic is bad. Well, as I learned more and more, I saw, you know, you don't need to use pesticides to protect, um, nylon fibers from, from moths. But if you have a wool carpet and you don't protect it, it's not going to last. Uh, it, 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 it's going to need to be protected from microbes of, and, and from insects. And, and then I realized that people were sandblasting old houses to restore them, uh, and a lot of the sand contained arsenic in it. You know, who could imagine then you sandblast a house and then they don't clean up the sand around it and then kids play in that and they get big exposures to arsenic. And the list goes on and on of the myths that we're susceptible to uh, uh, about natural is good and synthetic is bad. I'm not advocating that we create a synthetic world. I'm just saying we need to be more careful uh, about the assumptions uh, that we make. And, and I guess if there's one sort of buzzword I could use for uh, the biggest mistakes we make, we, we look for silver bullets. We try to find the best solution to a particular problem, and we ignore its side effects or the byproducts of that solution. And, you know, your example of the ozone uh, in remediation, there are proper uses of ozone for cleaning water. It's a great way to, to, to purify water. Uh, it has its benefits in restoration work, but it should not be used when people are present. Um, so... We, we need to be more conscious that writing on the casing of every silver bullet uh, are, are some problems and that we need to understand those better and not just assume that we've got the answer. I think measuring CO2 and, and using that as an indicator 
of indoor air quality is a great example uh, of oversimplification and, and sort of a silver bullet. Well, how before we go to halftime, I just want to also mention, because we, we've talked quite a bit about it here recently, during that sandblasting, they were probably also sandblasting off lead paint uh, and causing not only an arsenic problem, but a, a lead problem as well in many cases. Exactly. Well taken. Hal, let's uh, go to what we call our halftime. We're going to uh, bring you right back, but we're going to do our halftime. We have to thank our sponsors. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world. AIHA.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry. IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters. Developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. Tramexmeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Healthyindoors.com. All right, how we got you back? Yep. All right. Let's go through the early days real quick. We kind of went through your um, overview of, of, you know, how you got started in the industry and building ecology, how that came about. There's a couple quick questions on some of the early days in indoor air quality. Uh, some industry veterans uh, will point out that EPA's 1989 report to Congress on indoor air quality is kind of like the tipping point for IAQ. Uh, the time when, you know, when that term IAQ became understood and appreciated among a wide array of professional and trade disciplines. Uh, from your perspective, why was that report important, or if you think it was? Well, it was definitely important. It brought together a lot of things that uh, we had learned up to that point uh, into one place, and it was important because Congress mandated the report and, and uh, demonstrated interest in indoor air quality. Uh, but it, I wouldn't consider it the single tipping point, if you will. I don't think Unfortunately, indoor air quality is so diffuse and diverse that uh, it means so many things to so many people that there's no single tipping point. I think that you could argue that the formaldehyde, uh, high formaldehyde emissions in uh, mobile homes in the 1970s, late 1970s, there were front page stories in the New York Times. Uh, the discovery of the hot uh, radon region in Pennsylvania uh, in the late 1970s, uh, lead, lead paint in the late 70s, early 80s, asbestos in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, VOCs throughout the 80s, 
mold uh, in, 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 in the late 80s and into the 90s and up to the present day. Um, Legionella, the, the, the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in 1976 in the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia. So there, there are a lot of different points that, that different people would say are uh, important turning points. I've, I'm still waiting for the big turning point when indoor air quality becomes mainstream because uh, as much attention as those of us in the field pay to it, most people only pay attention to it when they are suffering a problem. Well, in the early 90s, there was another uh, EPA convened a stakeholders meeting, and it was a loosely knit group apparently called the Indoor Air Quality Interdisciplinary Forum. And it, it seemed like that could have been the start of, you know, organizations like the Indoor Air Quality Association or the um, International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. I'm trying not to get nailed by the acronym police here. But instead, it took another 10 years for these groups to really kind of come together. Um, what happened in the 90s that prevented industry from coalescing? And, and why have things changed so dramatically in the last 10 years compared to then? Uh, well, the science has advanced, but the practice, uh, the codes, the standards always lag far behind standards. But I think what's happened is indoor air has really been discovered as uh, an important problem and a pervasive problem by uh, enough people. There's a critical mass that uh, industry, the, the folks that uh, listen to this show and, and uh, people who are members of, of the uh, association that Glenn is the executive director of and many more uh, have realized that there's a market for attending to the quality of indoor air. And so when you start getting like a vacuum cleaner, I won't mention the name of it, but one that we've all seen advertised for 20 or 30 years now, when the guy who is marketing that vacuum cleaner starts talking about using his vacuum cleaner to clean indoor air, uh, then you know that indoor air is beginning to be an important item on, on uh, a larger segment of the population's agenda. So I would really attribute it to uh, sort of the incremental, but maybe geometric increase, but still relatively small total awareness of indoor air quality as an issue. How? what are your thoughts with respect to moisture, dampness, and, and mold? And why do people living in damp buildings get sick? Do you think it's the mold, the bacteria, something else, a combination? What? Um, there's really strong evidence that uh, moisture problems are present in the situations where either mold or bacteria are suspected. And there are also outcomes from excessive moisture that may not have anything to do with mold or bacteria. We know, for example, in Sweden, they had a lot of problems with uh, VOCs that were formed when there were interactions between uh, flooring compounds, floor leveling compounds or adhesives and uh, concrete that wasn't sufficiently dry. So uh, we, we do know that uh, the presence of moisture is a sign that there's something lurking and that we need to address the source of the moisture. I believe that there's sufficient evidence that 
certain species of mold and bacteria uh, are important for health outcomes, but the evidence is far weaker for mold in general. It's really on a species-by-species basis, and the same is true of bacteria. I mentioned the Legionnaire's disease. You know, it's pretty clear that Legionella pneumophila, the organism that causes Legionnaire's disease, uh, is a problem, and you won't see it unless you've got some moisture. So um, I, I think we need to address moisture as a problem, uh, and we need to understand the microbial ecology uh, that's in our buildings uh, much better. I, I mentioned the skin, skin cells that we all shed, and there are lots of bacteria riding on those skin cells. So we're distributing the bacteria that live on us, that find us a comfortable uh, host uh, throughout our environment, and there must be some relationship between the moisture level in the environment and the survivability and viability of those bacteria. Hal, prior to the show, obviously, we, you know, we always touch base with the guest that's coming on. We talk about their interests, and um, when I talked to you about uh, or emailed about current events and what things you thought were you know, pretty important with respect to current events, I'd, I'd said that you know, Jim White, um, who was with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, was on the show recently, and he had talked about passive versus natural ventilation. And, um, but I think he had a little different definition than you, so I just want to kind of first get the definitions between passive and natural ventilation and then get your thoughts on on the issue of passive ventilation and whether or not it's you know, something that we should be pursuing more strongly. Well, to me, passive ventilation and natural ventilation are synonyms. And in the technical literature, that's the way they're used. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that we should be using passive or natural ventilation whenever and, and, and wherever it can provide acceptable indoor environmental conditions. And that really means in terms of air quality and thermal conditions. So if you've got really bad air quality outside, you may be much better off with a mechanical system that has reasonably good filtration in it uh, and air cleaning devices to clean it up. If you've got really nice air quality outside uh, and the thermal conditions are uh, suitable, then uh, I I don't see any reason to use electricity and and use... uh, fossil fuels to heat or cool the air and, and, and condition the indoor space. You know, I may have had the terms mixed up. I, I think he was referring more to, you know, designed ventilation that was coming in through a building and one was using mechanical systems and the other was, was not. But not, not we're not talking about windows, but, you know, other types of uh, passive ventilation. So maybe maybe I had the terminology mixed up. I don't want to uh, I don't want to put words into Jim's mouth. I'll just have to listen to it again, I guess. But uh, well, I I know Jim pretty well, and Jim's mantra was always um, build it tight, ventilate right. And his focus, because he worked at CMHC, and they had so many homes that were sealed very tightly in order to save energy, and then they had a lot of IAQ problems. And then they also had a lot of very old homes that were very leaky. So he's talking about leakage, infiltration, which occurs even in very uh, well-built, energy-efficient houses. 
you're still going to get a certain amount of infiltration uh, through through cracks in the construction, leaks in the construction. Uh, were, these aren't spaceships, you know. They, they are, even what we call a hermetically sealed office building uh, is about as leaky as a house, um, and there's quite a bit of air exchange with the outside, and it's higher when there's a larger difference between the temperature inside and outside or when there's a strong wind. But intentional natural ventilation or passive ventilation uh, is a very good way to go, as I say, when, when the climate and the air quality outside are suitable. I, I think you anticipated a, a text question we got in here from guest 13. So if, if that didn't answer your question, just send us another text and we'll, we'll get back with Hal on that in just a moment. Okay, uh, next up, you, you're really active in ASHRAE, and they have a goal of zero net energy in buildings by, and I, I thought it was 2025, I don't know how, I didn't research it and double check it, but, you know, what are we going to have to do to reach that goal? First of all, do you recall if that's the year, and what are we going to have to do to reach that goal? I don't recall if that's the year. You know, California has a goal, ASHRAE has a goal, the American Institute of Architects has a goal. Um, the uh, 2030 uh, program that Ed Masria has started. So there's so many of these uh, ambitious goals floating around. But for me, uh, zero net energy in ASHRAE means building operational energy, not life cycle energy. And we really need to be heading toward not necessarily zero net energy because there is uh, enough energy available uh, that we can use, whether it's from wind or photovoltaic or uh, other natural uh, sources, hydropower, uh, geothermal, uh, we don't have to have zero uh, net energy buildings. But we do need to radically reduce the amount of energy that we use. And we need to look at a building, which ASHRAE's concept doesn't include, in terms of the full life cycle energy, including constructing the building, disposing of it at the end of its life, and the energy involved in transporting people and goods to and from the building. We already have buildings that use 10 or 20% as much energy as the average or code-mandated building. So we know we can do it. Um, but uh, the question is whether there'll be financial incentives or whether there'll be regulatory incentives or uh, what it is that's going to get us there because we're not moving in that direction very fast. Um, I, I think the, the word green is now, um, I think, I think there are a number of different definitions for it and, and so on and so forth. And it seemed like the word following green was sustainable. Uh, can you comment on the term sustainable? The, the word has become fairly meaningless. Um, the, the term came into fashion after the, uh, Environment Conference in Rio in 1992 and was based on the Brooklyn Commission's definition of sustainable development. And uh, sustainable development is a different concept from the idea of a sustainable society. From my perspective, the mistake we make as designers, as builders, as uh, consumers, even policymakers, is that we think of... Um, what the available solutions are and how much we can reduce our consumption or our pollution compared to our current level, as opposed to thinking about what would be sustainable in terms of consumption, 
of resources and emission of pollution. There's a wonderful report the Dutch did back in 1992 where they did that kind of an assessment on a global scale, and then they looked at the Dutch uh, portion of what would be sustainable, and they established targets of what they believed, based on the science, could be sustainable. I'll give you an example. They said that a, a, a hydrological region shouldn't use more than 29% of the water that falls on or flows through that region. And then there was a lot of science behind that number. And then they said the Netherlands uses 129% of the water that falls on and flows through it. And that's why the land in the Netherlands is not only already below sea level, a lot of it, but sinking. And, and so if you have a target to get from 130 to 30, then you know what you have to do. But if you just say, well, let's reduce by 50%, you know, I love it, Bill, Bill McDonough told the story. If I want to get from Salt Lake City to Mexico City, and I start driving 80 miles an hour, and then after an hour I realize that I'm headed north, it isn't going to help me to slow down to 50. Let me get one in, and then we'll go to our roundup, and I'll let Glenn go ahead and ask about the ASHRAE tank question. Um, we had Dr. Marilyn Black and Dr. Elliot Horner on the show recently, and they, they both discussed indoor air chemistry, and they were focused on primarily on volatile organic compounds, although Dr. Horner spoke quite a bit about um, microbials and MVOCs. What other indoor air chemistry issues should practitioners be more aware of? Well, they're using, and you're using the term indoor air chemistry quite differently from how the scientific community is is using it. Well, maybe that's my mistake. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I shouldn't put those words in their mouth. That was me, so uh, I'll take that. But indoor air chemistry. Please tell us how the scientific, you know, group are using it. We're we're talking about the reactions that occur uh, in the indoor air uh, among chemicals, between and among chemicals, chemicals that are in the air chemicals in the air with chemicals that are on surfaces. This is the work that Charlie Weschler really got us started on 20 years ago, and we've made a lot of advances. There's quite a bit of really good science. Uh, Again, you know, if people want to look at Charlie's lecture on YouTube, if you just go to YouTube and and Google Charles Weschler, you'll find it, or you can go to my website, and one of my news items uh, gives you a link to... uh, to Weschler's lecture, and, and I can't explain in two minutes what, what he does a nice job of in, in the hour of his lecture. But we're talking about the oxidants in outdoor air, primarily ozone, that we bring inside with the outdoor air for ventilation, reacting with things that uh, we've come to think of as, as good things, green cleaning products, uh, products that are based on terpenes like... Uh, a pine salt, pine oil uh, cleaner, or uh, citrus-based cleaners that have replaced the traditional industrial solvents that are so nasty. Now we're a lot. We're bringing them in. We're bringing in the outside air with the ozone. The ozone is reacting with them, and it's forming formaldehyde and higher molecular weight aldehydes. It's forming acidic aerosols. Aerosols things in the air that are acidic, that when we inhale them, they have an adverse effect on our respiratory system, and, and fine and ultrafine particles 
that also gets it's a, it's a much bigger story, and I can't get into it right here. Um, Charlie would be a better one to get into it anyway, or, or also Glenn Morrison. Um, but, but there's a lot of very good science that teaches us that we shouldn't be doing a lot of the things that, uh, that we're doing now that we think are solutions to indoor pollution that are actually exacerbating the situation. Okay, how we're going to go to what we call our roundup. We're going to bring uh, Dr. Dieter on. Uh, we're going to give. I think we'll go with um, we'll go with Dr. Dieter first. We'll give Glenn an opt, uh, a shot at the ASHRAE ten question, and then if there's time, Cliff and I will do one more. All right, let's bring Dr. Wow on. Dr. Dietrich Wow, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good day, Dieter. Thanks for your patience. Uh, I appreciate it. Interesting, uh, interesting topics, uh, plural, that we talked about, and I wish we had another hour or so to go <laughs> into more detail over there. But I like health uh, um, uh, comment, and, and there are a couple of things uh, which are of interest to me. You know, you know, I was at a university, and I remember we sent out chemical engineers, uh, they had no idea who or what EPA stood for or OSHA was. And um, Hal has apparently noticed that one too, that we graduate architects who have absolutely no idea about a lot of things that they should know a lot more about. And that bothers me. And I have, uh, he is not the only one. Uh, like Joe and I and Cliff at times, we go to Westford, uh, Massachusetts on the first week uh, in um, in uh, August. And I talk, you know, there are building engineers and architects. Most of them have gray hair. And they they confirmed what, what my observation was. We just don't teach the young engineers and uh, young architects anymore about things that they ought to know about. And I don't know why that is. And it, it, it upsets me. It really upsets me. Is it because it is so easily being taken care of? Well, let's I was one. The last time I, I taught a ventilation course was probably 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago here in Pittsburgh. And I don't think there's anybody who teaches that course anymore. Uh, so how the hell are they going to learn it? Let's that ask you out real quick, Dieter. How do you think uh, is there has there been any improvement in that area? I know we had Bill Rose on here not long ago, and he, I know he emphasizes those types of things up at uh, the University of Illinois. And we've had uh, Professor T. Lee up in uh, Ontario, I believe it was, uh, who you know talked about those issues. Are, are you seeing any change in that respect, Al? Yeah, I'd say there's a small change. Uh, you know, I taught my class in building ecology in 1983 at Berkeley in the architecture department and in Santa Cruz in the environmental studies program. Uh, it hasn't been picked up. It's not a, a regular thing. But at the same time, they added to the faculty in Berkeley uh, a building science uh, group that has done some incredible work uh, over the years. And now there's something called the Society of Building Science Educators. It's a very active group. They're mostly on architecture school faculties, but a lot of them are on engineering faculties. They actually uh, include some Europeans as well as Japanese, but it's 
mostly North American, and they exchange information about uh, how to get uh, this kind of information across to their students. It's a very active listserv. I'm a member of the listserv and a frequent contributor to it. And, and, and I think that there is a change, but it's not universal. It's nowhere near adequate. I think Dieter's absolutely right that uh, uh, there's a paucity of attention to this. There's also a paucity of interest in the subject. There just isn't sufficient interest among uh, young architecture students. They, when I was a student, all of us, we, we all wanted to be Frank Lloyd Wright. You know? <laughs> yep. It's all about being a hero, about designing the... Who screwed up a hell of a lot of building. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but but there are there are some superhero architects as well. Alvar Alto from Finland is a good example. Oh, no doubt about it. A very early, healthy building architect. But in, in any case, I, I think there's a small change. It's too slow. It's not enough. But uh, there's some hope. Thank you, Hal. Yep. Um, Hal, before we go to Glenn, I have two quick text messages, I believe. What building occupancy guidelines exist for home construction with respect to ventilation and moisture management? With respect to, to ventilation, now ASHRAE has, much to my chagrin, adopted a requirement that there must be mechanical ventilation in residences, and the state of California has also adopted that as, as code. Uh, every jurisdiction, uh, state or local municipality has the right to uh, to adopt or not adopt those kinds of requirements. And probably for much of the country, it's not a bad idea, but uh, what we're doing is we're leading people away from understanding what makes a healthy home and for uh, taking control over their own environment, uh, which for me is essential if we're going to create sustainable and, and, and healthy homes. Let's, let's see, that was half your question. What was the other half? Well, about? I think they wanted to know about ventilation and moisture management, but uh, I, I think you hit that real well. He said thanks. And also, they asked us to uh, have you direct folks to the base study, BASE, uh, updates for ozone effects on interiors. So uh, maybe if you can pass that information along to me, how I will uh, put it up on the website. But let's uh, let's go to, to uh, Glenn Fellman real quick. I know he had a question on ASHRAE 10. I do. Thank you very much. Um, Hal, within uh, an ASHRAE press release, you were quoted as saying two things which really uh, stuck out to me about this document. First, you said it can provide assistance to building design professionals and building operators by making them aware of the major interactions that have the potential to impact the indoor environment. And you also said that uh, we believe the guideline will help draw attention to the narrowly defined scopes of the widely used standards and the significance of interactive effects in determining the acceptability of an indoor environment. These struck me as really key statements in that, you know, for so long I've heard from IAQ professionals and, 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 and folks I, I respect like yourself about how the industry kind of uh, floats around in its own little individual bubbles and people don't understand how the bubbles interconnect. So if you could, just for a minute, talk to us about uh, this new ASHRAE guideline and, and why you think it will be so significant. Well, um, I, I, I spoke earlier in terms of some of our biggest mistakes being the separation of the standards for ventilation and air quality and, and standards for thermal comfort. 
what we've done in this guideline, what we were mandated to do by the Ashway Board of Directors, uh, I should say 19 years ago, we've been working on this for 19 years, um, was bring together what we know about how these various indoor environmental factors, lighting and noise, but to a much greater extent, thermal conditions and uh, uh, ventilation and air quality interact and how they affect each other. Uh, an excellent example is uh, the work of Lars Mohav. He showed that the same concentration of VOCs at a warmer temperature causes more reactions in humans. So what do you do with that if you're meeting the thermal comfort standard and you're meeting the ventilation standard, but you're up at the upper end of the range of VOC concentrations? What you should do is either increase your ventilation if the outdoor air is cleaner uh, or reduce the temperature. But neither the ventilation standard nor the thermal comfort standard will tell you to do that. So, so we, we, we brought attention to what we know from, from good science about these interactions. Hal, I'm really hoping we can bring you back. I've, I've got about 10 questions left, uh, not including the follow-ups I would like to have asked. But, uh, Cliff, why don't you finish up here for well, us? No, I, what I'd like to do is just um, ask you, how. thank you for, for joining us, and then just uh, give you my time. Is there anything that you'd like to add, any subject that we didn't cover? Well, certainly we could get into more depth on, on what's sustainable. We can get into more depth on the details of the interactions that we covered in the ASHRAE guidelines. The, the public review documents from ASHRAE are free. Once they get adopted, you have to buy them. So the best thing to do is to download the public review drafts when they're out for public review. And you can do that at the ASHRAE website, ashrae.org forward slash public reviews. Uh, and I encourage everybody to read it, even even if you don't comment on it. I'm not encouraging comments, because if you make critical comments, we'll have to revise it, and we'll be working on it for another 19 years. <laughs> but uh, but I, I really did this, worked on this, and, and with a lot of help from others, uh, to get this information out to the public, because it's it, it, it really is a, a building ecology endeavor. And, and everybody needs to be more aware of these things. I guess we better wrap it up here now. First, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a fascinating show. I know I'll go home and listen to it again because I was shuffling paper and organizing things here, and I missed a little bit, but I'm going to definitely listen again in the morning. Thanks to Hal Levin uh, from the Building Ecology Research Group for joining us this week on IAQ Radio. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, Environmental Annie Koalecki, our Technical Director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, Glenn Feldman at IE Connections What's News, but most importantly, we had a nice group online here listening in. I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll see you back here next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 